Hey, what up Seekers? Welcome back. Today we are going to talk about 10 historical Jewish women who were mystics that you have probably never heard of. One thing before we present these incredible women themselves. Researching this video has been a real trip for me. Before embarking on it, I could maybe name two or three historical Jewish women mystics. And as I went about researching, learning about these women, collecting information about them, just when I thought I was ending my research, they would introduce me to another sister, mother, saint, mystic, prophetess, messiah. And I went from being embarrassed about how few women mystics there were in the history of Judaism, to being surrounded by so many incredible women, and needing to cut back just to keep the list at around 10. It was really incredible to befriend these spiritual giants and visionaries, who, although are physically long dead, in spirit are very much still alive. And finding myself guided playfully from one giant to the next, as they silently emerged from the shadows of footnotes and passing references into full life in blazing color. It is my hope that you, the listener, will befriend these incredible women too, and that they invite you in and introduce you to their friends and their friends' friends, and that in their words and deeds, you find wisdom, patience, hope, courage, dignity, and inspiration. And because I want this to be just the beginning of your journey, down in the description of the video, I've put a gold mine of well-selected primary and secondary sources on each of the characters and on certain larger themes that come out. Please check it out after the video. Okay, and here we go. We're going to present 10 Jewish women from history who were mystics and or masters of Kabbalah, beginning chronologically at the top of the list with Ines of Herrera. Ines of Herrera was born in the little town of Herrera del Duque in Castile, Spain in 1488. By the time she was 11, in August of 1499, she was having mystical visions and enthusiastically sharing them with her community. Ines's mother passed away when she was quite young and Ines was raised by her father and stepmother. Needless to say, for those that know a bit of Spanish Jewish history, these years were fraught with trauma and difficulty for the Jews of Spain, who had either been exiled recently in 1492 in the Spanish expulsion, or had been forcibly converted to Christianity rather than leave their country. This young conversa, Ines, began to talk about and share her mystical experiences, reporting her ascent to heaven with her deceased mother, who had held out her hand to her daughter, allaying her fears. There Ines saw angels and various souls seated upon golden thrones. These accounts were apparently quite convincing, and Ines quickly gained a following of conversos of all ages. Conversos, by the way, are those Jews that converted to Christianity to avoid persecution. Many young girls in particular were quite enthralled with her, and were thrilled with the idea that salvation and redemption might be on its way. And Ines's talk of a coming redemption provided a lot of relief and comfort to those who had been forcibly converted. Ines passed on the instructions she had heard from her past mother, that the Jewish community should fast on Monday and Thursday, traditional days of fasting in Jewish history, give extra charity and observe the Shabbat. Ines began what we can now consider a revivalistic movement, leading throngs of women in ecstatic dance, song, mystical revival, and calls for repentance and a strengthening of Jewish values and practices. Word traveled quite quickly through the region, and many came to hear the words coming from the mouth of this young prophetess. 
Enos was certain that the prophet Elijah was coming to announce the coming of the Messiah, and that all the believers would be transported to the Holy Land, to the land of Israel. Many of the girls dressing in white, waiting for their spiritual transportation to the Holy Land. Unfortunately for Enos and her followers, this was the exact activity that attracted the bad attention of the Inquisition. The conversos, from the perspective of the Inquisition, instead of being assimilated into Christian society, were being exposed to heretical ideas that precluded the chance of their proper conversion and integration. By April 1500, after eight months of prophesizing, Enos was arrested. The information available to us about Enos's arrest is unfortunately lost. Her trial documents have not been found. However, numerous details from the trial records of her followers fill in the blank details. Thus, by August of the year 1500, Enos was tried as a heretic by the Inquisition, and being a conversa, messianic, prophetic voice of Jewish revival was far too threatening for the Inquisition to tolerate. And Enos, after being found guilty of heresy, was burnt alive at the stake. She was 12 years old. And in February 1501, over a hundred of her followers, most of them women, were burnt at two public burnings, auto de fe's, in Toledo. If you'd like to learn more about Ines, the books that are probably best on the subjects are from Chaim Bernard. I will post them here up on the screen, and I will post a link in the description. The next mystic on our list is Fioretta di Modena. Fioretta, or Batsheva, was a Torah scholar who was well-versed in a wide range of Jewish literature, including Talmud, Jewish lore, particularly Maimonides, Midrash, and Kabbalistic literature, including the Zohar. She kept to a weekly schedule of learning on all these topics that she herself had charted out. Fioretta's grandson was Aaron Barachia, a famous sage and Kabbalist in Modena, Italy. Like many Italian Jewish women, Fioretta was the one who practically supervised the education and tutelage of her grandson, particularly in the cases where fathers and grandfathers were otherwise preoccupied. Fioretta took full responsibility for Aaron's education and spared no expenses in making sure that his education was top scratch, traveling around the country looking for the best teachers available on every subject. Many years later, the respected scholar and author paid tribute to his grandmother in the introduction to two of his books, Seder Ashmarata Boker and Ma'avor Yabok, speaking openly about her fluency in Tanakh, Mishnah, Tamud, Rishonim, the medieval authorities on Jewish law, and the Zohar, referring to her as the mother of my mother, the honorable and wise elder, Morat Fioretta, and writing that she was the one, above all others, who raised me like a son from the moment I left my mother's womb, and I owe to her the honor due to her mother or father. May my good name be remembered before God, he wrote, together with the merit of my mother's mother, the righteous Fioretta. So there we have a woman all the way back in the 1500s in Italy, who her grandson, a world-renowned Kabbalist, testifies to her extensive knowledge of many fields of Jewish thought, including Kabbalah and the Zohar. Quite incredible. Shlomo Ashkenazi has written about this in his Nashim Lam Daniot. Again, link in the description. In a very different part of the world, not long after, comes the story of an incredible woman, Asnat Barzani. Asnat was a Jewish Kurdish woman who lived in Iraq, and her writings demonstrate 
a mastery of the Hebrew language, the Tanakh, Talmud, Midrash, and Kabbalah. Asnat was the daughter of the rabbinic scholar and mystic Rabbi Shmuel Barzani, who had founded several yeshivot, academies of higher Jewish learning, and was the head of one such yeshiva in Mosul. Her father Shmuel lived in great poverty and was regarded as a saint and mystic. Since he had no sons, he took his daughter under his wings and trained Asnat to be a learned Torah scholar of the highest order, both in the revealed and in the hidden Kabbalistic dimensions of Torah. Asnat describes her upbringing in a letter. I never left the entrance of my house or went outside, she writes. I was like a princess of Israel. I grew up in the laps of scholars, anchored to my father of blessed memory. I was never taught any work but that of sacred study, to uphold it as it says, Vihigita bo yomam velayla, and you shall toil in it day and night. Asnat eventually married one of her father's closest students, her cousin, Rabbi Yaakov Mizrahi. Realizing that marriage may force his daughter out of her role as a Torah scholar, her father insisted that the wedding documentation stipulate that his daughter must never be troubled with domestic work. And she describes the conditions of her marriage in the following letter. And he, my father, made my partner swear never to allow me to engage in work. And thus he did as my father commanded. After her father passed away, her husband became the head of the yeshiva, the head of the academy in Mosul. However, he was so involved and engrossed in his own studies that the practical teaching of the students and the running of the yeshiva fell into the hands of Asnat. From the start, the rabbi, her husband, was involved in his studies and did not have time to teach the students. So I would teach them in his stead, writes Asnat. However, her husband died quite early, but instead of closing down the yeshiva upon his death, Asnat herself took over as Rosh Yeshiva as dean of the academy, making her what would appear to be the very first woman Rosh Yeshiva, dean and head teacher in a Talmudic academy in all of Jewish history. And despite financial difficulties, the yeshiva continued to run successfully and to produce outstanding students, including her own son, who she sent then to Baghdad to continue the illustrious rabbinic lineage passing on through her. Her few extant writings display a complete mastery, as we said, of Hebrew, Tanakh, Midrash, Halakha, Talmud, as well as Kabbalah. And her writings are not only quite erudite and learned, but also lyrical and poetic. Asnat, in fact, was known as a poet as well, and is said to have authored a piyot, a liturgical poem, in Kurdish, called Ga'agua Litzion, Yearnings for Zion. The German-Jewish ethnologist Eric Brauer, who included Asnat's letter in his 1940 study of the Jews of Iraq without mentioning her name, was convinced that the letter could hardly have been composed by her, since it is full of militzot, poetic references, and reveals no small knowledge of Hebrew and rabbinic literature. Oh, how wrong Bauer was. Here is some reading material on Asnat and her life, and they will all be posted with more in the description. The next few women that I'd like to talk about belong to the 16th century, to the Renaissance that took place in Jewish mysticism in the small Galilean town in northern Israel, Tzfat, otherwise known as Safed. 
our primary source about these women and their mystical prowess comes, like so many of these cases, from one single document. That document is Sefer HaChazyonot, the Book of Visions, the mystical diary of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the foremost student of arguably the most influential Kabbalist in the history of Jewish mysticism, the Arizal Rabbi Isaac Luria, who, in his own right, Vital, became one of the most preeminent Kabbalists of the late 16th and early 17th century. His diary is of immense historical significance, being one of the few diaries written by Kabbalists. In this diary, his Book of Visions, amongst other things, Chaim Vital tells the story of several women with whom he had contact throughout his life in Tzfat, Jerusalem, and Damascus. Vital describes these women, whom he consulted for their skills in divination, their ability to make contact with the deceased, and for their general clairvoyant abilities. He also records many of the dreams that the women shared with him, particularly those where he featured as a character. Vital's accounts indirectly reveal his unabashed acceptance of these women's religious integrity and mystical prowess. And a close reading of Vital's descriptions sheds a great deal of light on the unique nature of their spirituality. So, who were these women? The first we will discuss is a woman by the name of Francesa Sara. Vital depicts Francesa as an extremely wise and righteous woman. Vital writes, Francesa Sara is a pious woman who sees visions while awake and hears a voice speaking to her. Most of her pronouncements are true, writes Chaim Vital. These are exceptional attainments by any standard, but there's more. What makes Francesa a truly unique character in the history of Jewish mysticism is that Francesa is the only woman recorded to have been visited by a Magid. A Magid is an angelic spirit that comes to teach the Kabbalistic adept and sometimes to reveal to them things that are going to come in the future. The reason why this is so incredible is that the revelation of the Magid is something that was reserved for really only the greatest caliber of scholars and Kabbalists. For example, one of the other individuals who we know received a Magid was a man by the name of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, one of the greatest Kabbalists of his day, and the author of one of the most authoritative and enduring works in Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. Francesa, in receiving visitations from this Magid, from this angelic spirit, puts her in a very unique cadre of scholars and individuals. Vital also quite touchingly, in my opinion, describes Francesa sitting in the study hall while he taught his students, and sitting alongside her is the unnamed daughter of a colleague of Chaim Vital, Rabbi Shlomo Alkabatz, one of the other great Kabbalists of the period, and one of the greatest poets in Jewish history. To think that there was some 16th century mystical sisterhood amongst the daughters of the greatest Kabbalists of the period is, to me, quite an exciting thought, and I would really love to see more research done in that direction. Now, besides for Vital's writing, we have one other historical source which gives reference to the life of Francesca Sara. This is a book, Sefer Divrei Yosef, from Joseph Sambari, which was a history of Jews under Muslim rule written some 60 years later. In his account, he writes, In those days there was a woman, wise and great in her deeds, in the upper Galilee, Tzfat, may be rebuilt speedily in our days. Her name was Francesa. She had a mugged speak to her and inform her of what was to be in the world. 
The sages of Tzfat tested her several times to know if there was substance to her words, and everything that she said came to pass. A bit more of a positive review of her forecasts than Vital gave her. Sambari includes two lengthy stories about Francesa in the context of his discussion of the 16th century Tzfat Kabbalists, and both of these stories underpin Francesa's high standing amongst the rabbinic elites of the community. The first recounts of her summoning and ordering the rabbis of Tzfat to declare a fast, informing them that a plague had been decreed to strike the community. The rabbis, we are told in the story, immediately declared a fast for young and old, men and women alike. Amidst the fasting and the praying, Francesa mournfully foretells the death of Rabbi Moses de Suriel, and indeed Suriel passes away on the day that Francesa predicts, dying for the sins of the community, which was spared from the plague. Quote, just as the woman had said. Both this and the second story that Sambari relate depict a mystic prophetess enjoying revelatory experiences, summoning rabbis, declaring fasts, foreseeing deaths, and forestalling plagues. Another leading woman figure in this period is the young daughter of Rabbi Raphael Anav, whose first name we unfortunately never learn, and we'll refer to her simply as Anav. Anav, while still a young girl, served as an oracle to the entire Jewish community of Damascus, and was consulted and obeyed by its leading rabbinic figures. Despite not knowing her first name, Vital devotes no less than seven full pages in his very tightly written 80-page diary to an account of her spirit possession, a form of a de book, and subsequent mediumship in Damascus in the fall of 1609. This idea of spirit possession is a trope and motif that runs through much of the literature of Jewish mysticism known as the de book, where the soul of another deceased person comes and inhabits the body of a living person, taking control of their host and speaking a message through their voice. In this account, it is the spirit of a certain sage, Chacham Piso, who possesses the young Anav. We're told of the journey of Chacham Piso through the waters of the Euphrates into a fish and ultimately via ingestion into the body of Anav, all instigated in order for him to declare through her that the Jewish community of Damascus must repent. While in the girl's body, Chacham Piso slash Anav provided detailed ritual directions for what the Jews were to do on the Shabbat and gathered the souls of half a dozen other deceased sages while he slash she dispatched their mission, and all the while harshly criticizing the rabbinic establishment of Damascus, calling them out for their sins and their misconduct. Putting aside the spirit possession side of this for a second, in the character of Anav, we find the character of a fiercely independent young woman, unafraid and highly critical of the rabbinical establishment of her day, that was in fact quite wayward and corrupt. And after the exorcism of the spirit of Piso from within her, Anav's independent prophetic career begins. And through Vital's diary, we find her taking visitations to heaven and hell, meeting hosts of angels and deceased souls, mediating between the living and the dead, charging her with her mission to bring the Jews of Damascus to repentance, and thus saving them from destruction. And amongst the living, she sees the sins of others with shocking clarity and does not hesitate to set people on their correct path. 
Anav, we must note, however, is not alone. She has, in fact, a mentor amongst the women of Damascus, a woman by the name of Rachel Aberlin. Rachel Aberlin, also known as Rachel Hashkenazia, was a leader amongst women of Damascus and spiritual mentor to Anav. Rachel was married to a man by the name of Yehuda Aberlin, a leader of the Jewish community of Tzfat, and sister to the eminent Kabbalist, Rabbi Yehuda Mishan, an ecstatic mystic and one of Luria's most dedicated disciples. A devotion to mystical pursuits, and to Luria in particular, that Rachel herself shared strongly. After the death of her husband, Rachel became a patron to many of the leading rabbinic figures of the community and became a leading religious figure in her own right, establishing a chatzar, a court, in Tzfat, and becoming eventually a patron of Chaim Vital himself, beginning a friendship that would last for decades to come. Rachel and Vital, in fact, seem to have been quite close, with a strong spiritual camaraderie, patronage, and mentorship between them. The two often, it seems, traveled in tandem, each being present while the other was in Tzfat, Jerusalem, or Damascus. And for certain amounts of time, Vital, together with his wife and children, lived on Rachel's estate. Rachel, writes Vital, received visitations from the prophet Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, regularly, and is described by Vital as having been accustomed to see visions, demons, souls, and angels, and almost everything she says is correct, from her childhood through to her adulthood. A revelation of the prophet Elijah, another key concept in revelatory Jewish mystical experiences was a very high attainment, precisely because there was not much that one could do to prepare themselves in advance for such a revelation as opposed to other modes of revelation. Therefore, those that received the revelation of the prophet Elijah must have had something special going on on a mystical scale, such as in the case of Rachel Aberlin, and indicative perhaps of a larger historical theme running here, contrasting male and female forms of Jewish mysticism. In the spring of 1609, Rachel had a dream. In the dream, she had entered into the room where Vital was sitting and studying. He was sitting at a table piled high with books, and he was eating radishes and lettuce, a snack which Rachel thought was a quite a bizarre snack, but Chaim Vital said that that was his normal go-to bite. Behind him, Rachel saw a heap of straw, burning but unconsumed, and the fire was illuminating the entire house. Rachel asked Vital to explain the meaning of the dream, to which he replied with a verse, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Esau for straw. Criticizing Vital's bookish interpretation of her dream, she tells him, You tell me the words of the verse as it was written, but I see the matter in itself completely manifest. Vital, the male Kabbalist, may have been the master of the mystical word, the sacred text. But Rachel, the master of the experience, saw the very thing that the word was trying to point to. And that takes us to our next mystic. In the year 1570, writes Vital, there was a wise woman who predicted the future, and who was also an expert in the art of oil gazing, lacanomancy. They called her Sonadora. I asked her over the oil, by means of an incantation, as is customary, about my attainment in the art of Kabbalah. She did not know how to respond to me until she was imbued by a zealous spirit and strengthened herself in her incantations. Sonodora goes on to tell Vital of the greatness of his soul 
as she had seen it spelt out in the floating letters of oil upon the water. And she also interprets one of Vital's dreams at his behest. Vital also consulted other women who were experts in divination. Two more he gives by name are Mira and Mazaltov. Mazaltov sought out for advice by Vital, quote, hears voices, whereas Mira has dreams that impose missions upon her. Their grim prophecies coming to pass in a plague that strikes Damascus. From what Vital tells us about them, it would seem that Sonadora, Mira, and Mazaltov had more in common with the typical Iberian sorceress than with the mystics. The former were distinguished by their mastery of techniques in the domain of love magic, divination, and communication with the deceased. That said, in a community where the leading rabbinic figures were themselves engaged deeply in magic theory and practice, the distinction between sorceress and saint may have been a bit harder to make. But whatever we may make of them, clearly, the women encountered in Vital's diary were adepts of a variety of types and accomplishments, some of them excelling only in the fields of magic and divination, while others combined their magical prowess with clairvoyancy, ecstatic states of trance, visionary activity, and prophetic gifts and many of their revelatory experiences charging them into positions of leadership and communal responsibility. The next major movement following the Safadian Renaissance in the 16th century was the disastrous calamity of the Shabbatian movement of the 17th century, championed by the self-proclaimed messiah turned Muslim apostate Shabzai Tzvi and his prophet Nathan of Gaza. Highly involved in this catastrophic mystical messianic movement were a number of high-powered and charismatic women. The entire relationship between Shabbatianism and its women is a complex matter, and there has been quite a bit of scholarship devoted to explicating it. I'm going to post in the description to a text by Adarapot Alpert, although it's in Hebrew. We're going to skip the bulk of Shabbatianism here and catch it by its tail end with the movement that it birthed that took things to a whole nother level, Frankism, and talk about their final revered leader, Messiah, and believed reincarnation of the Virgin Mary, a woman by the name of Eve Frank. Eve was born in Nikonopol, in the Ottoman Empire, into the Muslim Jewish community of the Donme, a community of about 200 crypto-Jewish families living between Turkey and Greece, who had converted to Islam together with their messiah and leader, Shabzai Tzvi, the latter under duress from Sultan Mahmed IV, the former under the belief that his apostasy was in fact a secret messianic mission, deliberately undertaken to release the trapped sparks inside of Ishmael. Eve was the daughter of the charismatic Shabbatian leader, a follower of Shabzai Tzvi by the name of Jacob Frank, who claimed in fact to be the reincarnation of Shabzai Tzvi, and went on to be the founder of a new debaucherous, orgiastic, anarchistic, antinomian movement, numbering in the tens of thousands at its heyday which taught the doctrine of purification through transgression, known today as Frankism, which rejected all moral and ritual prohibitions and restrictions 
outlined in Jewish law and ethics. After the passing of her father in 1791, the movement passed into the hands of Eve, and she became the cult leader of this transgressive, messianic, mystical group, making her, according to some historians, the first and only woman to be declared a messiah in Jewish history. And just when you thought that was enough, Eve was actually born Rachel, and received the name Eve in 1960 upon her family's conversion to Catholicism. And at the tender age of 16, Eve was declared to be an incarnation of the Shechina, the feminine aspect of the divinity in the teachings of Kabbalah, as well as the reincarnation of the Virgin Mary, thus becoming the object of a devotional subcult herself, with some of her followers keeping small statues in their homes to which they worship. And here things get just a little bit crazier. Eve's father, Jacob Frank, discussed Eve's messianic nature in the inner Frankist circles, while publicly spreading the rumor that she was the illegitimate child of the Russian Empress, Catherine the Great, of the House of Romanov. And in 1777, Frank traveled with Eve to Vienna, where they were both received with favor at the royal court most likely for their role of spreading Catholicism inside the Jewish community. But, in their eyes, they took this as a sign of their rightful nobility. And in November 1813, after the Battle of Leipzig, Tsar Nicholas I, then Emperor of Russia, rode from Frankfurt to Offenbach to visit Yves Frank, further confirming their royal posturing. Following her father's death, Eve, as leader of the movement, despite the dwindling of support and funding, continued to live an extravagant, lavish lifestyle, conducting herself as a Romanov princess, incurring the heavy debt of three million gulden, and finally dying in poverty in 1816. Nevertheless, her followers continued to worship her, many of them continuing to do so all the way up into the mid-19th century. Before continuing with our list into the next great epoch of Jewish mysticism, I'd like to just clarify something. We said that Eve Frank was, according to many, the only woman to have laid claim to the messianic title in Jewish history. And I certainly thought so too before doing this research. However, this may not be the case. I'd like to tell you about two other women who may have been seen as messiahs, or at the very least as heralders of the Messiah by their respective communities. A bundle of sheets from the famous Cairo Geniza, preserved today in Oxford, tells of a pious unnamed woman, only known as the daughter of Joseph, the son of the physician. All the information that we have about her comes in the form of a single letter, sent in approximately 1121, some time after the event itself, written on the back of an old deed and addressed to someone in Fustat, Egypt. It tells the curious story of an unnamed woman from Baghdad, who lived during a period of trouble between the Jewish community and the Muslim authorities over an issue of money and taxation. As a result of the quarrel, the entire male Jewish community, probably numbering no more than two or three hundred at the time, were imprisoned by the Muslim rulership. That sets the stage for the 25th of the Hebrew month of Elul, 
1120, when this woman, the daughter of Joseph, a pious young woman, according to the letter, who had led an aesthetic life and had only married under pressure, appeared in public declaring that she had seen the prophet Elijah and had been told by him that the redemption of the community of Israel was near at hand. The character of Elijah throughout Jerusalem's history has always been accepted as a harbinger, as a heralder of the forthcoming messianic redemption. And it seems that the Jewish community may have become convinced that this woman herself, she was the Messiah, the Redeemer. The Caliph, who was the one who was doing the imprisoning, upon hearing the news of the antics of the prophecies of this woman, ordered that the very next day she shall be burnt alive. However, that very same night, according to the letter, the Caliph had a dream in which the prophet Elijah appeared to him. Struck with awe from the appearance of the prophet, the Caliph rescinded his decree of execution and released the Jewish prisoners and withdrew his request for additional taxation, which had caused the whole tumult in the beginning. It is here that the letter breaks off, and we know nothing more about the fate of this young woman from Baghdad. The second woman takes us to an undisclosed date in history, to the coast of Sicily, and about her all we have is a fragment which tells the story of a certain charismatic woman who had been pregnant for nine months but was yet to bear a child, but she had began to prophesize. The scene is described in the fragment how this woman after one prayer service summoned the entire community to witness the manifestation of the coming of the Messiah. And she claimed to be doing this at the behest of the Holy One. In her ecstatic state, the unnamed woman demanded that several shawls and covers be brought and placed upon her. And upon them began to appear letters in saffron color. Among with other manifestations of similar signs and letters in gold and blood and in a bizarre accounting of events, this woman asked that these shawls, these talitot, as they're described in the text at times, be hung up to be seen publicly by the community as a sign for the coming redemption, in order that they do proper repentance, tshuva, before the Messiah comes. And in the end of the fragment, we read of a message that she tells to the community. She said, Woe to the wicked, and woe to them that do not repent, since... Thus swore the Holy One, before the angels and before Moses our teacher. The end is near, and if the wicked will not repent, behold, many will perish by sword, and in famine and persecution. And if they will repent, they will escape, since my salvation is near to come. That concludes the rather strange stories of these two other potential messianic women in Jewish history. And once again, I will put in the description of the video sources for material where you can read more about these bizarre and fascinating cases. We now enter into the next truly great epoch in Jewish mysticism, mysticism for the masses, Hasidism. The 18th century Hasidic movement, a rebirth and democratization of the Jewish spirit in the bosom of a crushed Eastern European Jewry, demands a lot to be discussed by way of introduction. And perhaps we will make 
God willing, we will make a separate video and even a series of videos covering, introducing, and discussing the Hasidic movement, not just because it's the mystical tradition which I myself was born into, but because it's an incredibly important one for the history of mysticism and Jewish mysticism in particular. But if there's one thing to know about the Hasidic movement, at least from a sociological standpoint, it is the innovative relationship between Rebbe and Hasid, master and disciple, leader and student, shepherd and flock, that becomes a defining feature of the movement. Now, being and belonging to a highly traditional society, all Hasidic Rebbes were men. That is, besides for one, Chana Rachel Webermacher was born in the Polish shtetl Ludmir around 1805 to Hasidic parents who were followers of the Hasidic masters Rabbi Mordechai Tversky, known as the Magid of Chernobyl. Chana Rachel's father was also a wealthy businessman and as such provided a top-class Jewish education for his daughter. When Chana Rachel was just nine years old, her mother passed away and in a transformative moment in her early teens, while visiting her mother's grave, Chana Rachel became extremely ill, during which she is reported to have had heavenly visions, in which she received a, quote, new and lofty soul. When she finally recovered from her illness, she was a truly transformed person, and began fulfilling the Jewish requirements that are obligatory only for men, and began to spend much time in meditation, study, and prayer. She soon acquired a reputation for being a scholar, miracle worker, and healer, and many sought her out for advice, blessing, and healing. And when her father died shortly later, she used the money which she received in her inheritance to build a beautiful synagogue and study hall of her own. As her fame grew, Chana Rachel began to assume the responsibilities, roles, and tasks reserved strictly for Hasidic rabbis, such as receiving private audiences, yechidut, and kfitzlach, prayer requests, presiding over a tish, the rabbaic table surrounded by one's Hasidim, one's disciples, at which she would teach novel Torah teachings, and pass out shirayim, leftovers from the Rebbe's meal, all traditional roles and rites performed strictly by the Rebbe. Although many accounts say that she did so from behind some sort of partition out of modesty. Now, while other women, such as Malka of Trisk and Chana Rachel of Chernobyl, also acquired reputations for their sanctity and holiness. They were always relatives to powerful Hasidic men. By contrast, Khan Rachel, known as the Maiden of Ludmir, was born simply to a well-to-do family that was not part of any emerging Hasidic dynasty, making her sanctity and leadership something of an independent phenomena, not relying on the religious status of other men in her family, or husband. However, Chana Rachel, being the anomaly that she was, was receiving considerable opposition from the staunchly traditional Hasidic community, who were uneasy with her unusual practice. Unsure of what to do, Chana Rachel consulted with her father's rabbi, the Magid of Chernobyl. The Magid requested that she discontinue her unusual behavior and requested that she get married. 
Chanarach abided and temporarily halted her activities as a Hasidic rebbe and teacher, and got married, although it is unclear how long that marriage lasted. Later, probably around 1859, Chanarachel emigrated to the land of Israel, settling in the Meish Arim neighborhood of Jerusalem, where she attracted a small but diverse following of Jerusalemite women, may have even been included them a number of Muslim women, and gained their reputation as a Torah teacher and Kabbalist. On Shabbat mornings, she would walk to the Western Wall to pray, surrounded by a retinue of followers and those hoping to get her blessings. And on Shabbat afternoons, they would gather in her home to hear words of Torah. And famously for the celebration of Simchat Torah, women would come from all over the country, as far as Hebron, Tiveria, and Svat, to enjoy the festivities and celebrations with her and to hear Torah from her lips. Chana Rachel, the maiden of Lubmir, passed away on the 22nd of the Hebrew month of Tammuz and was buried on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, her burial place becoming a place of pilgrimage for her followers for many years to come. Despite or perhaps because of the lack of information that we have factually about her life, Chana Rachel has inspired a century of writers to tell and retell her story in theater and fiction, including Singer's novel Shoshan, and more recently Gershon Winkler's novel They Called Her Rebbe. For more scholarly works on this incredible character, check out these works and post it in the description as well for titles. Enjoy. It would be remiss not to mention other women of great independent spiritual stature within the Hasidic movement. What comes to mind are people like Yenta the Prophetess, Tirza, the granddaughter of Reb Zusha of Annapoli, and the Premishlaner Rebetzin of Jerusalem. But the first Hasidic woman of note, and perhaps the most influential historically, although we know very, very little about her, is the daughter of the founder of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Yisrael Balsham himself, whose name was Adil. Adil was known for her righteousness and is recorded to have been imbued with Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in Jewish terminology. The Bashem held of his daughter very highly and treated her like one of his holy disciples, and Adol traveled with the Bashem when he made his treacherous journey to the land of Israel. Most interesting, perhaps, is that the early Hasidic teachings, although they are now known as Hasidut, were seemingly not called by that name, by the first generation of Hasidim. Rather, the Torah of the Baal Shem Tov, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, were known simply as Eish Das Lamay. And what's interesting here is that the first three letters of that biblical verse, which was used as a moniker for the early movement's teaching, Eish Das Lamay, Aleph Dalad Lamad, spell Adol. How do you like that? Adul was married to Rabbi Yechiel Ashkenazi, and together they had three children of historical significance for the Hasidic movement. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sulikov, the author of Degel Machen Ephraim. Rabbi Baruch of Mezhibush, the author of Butzina de Nehera, And Fega, the mother of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And that concludes our survey. 
albeit way, way, way too short of a survey of women within the Hasidic movement. Esther, or better known as Eti Hillesim, was born on the 15th of January, 1914, in the town of Middleburg, Holland, to Riva and Levi Hillesim. After completing school in 1932, Eti moved to Amsterdam to study law, Slavic languages, particularly Russian, and then psychology. Possibly at the suggestion of her therapist, friend, and eventually lover, Julius Speer, a Jewish man who was a Jungian analyst and palm reader, who introduced her to St. Augustine and to a deeper appreciation of Dostoevsky and Rilke. Reality is not entirely real to me, Eti wrote later in her diary. A single line of Rilke seems more real to me than moving houses or anything like that. The diary, written over the course of two tumultuous years and a series of letters, is the only extant pieces of information we have about Etty's inner world, her thoughts and feelings. But thank God we have her diary and her letters. The diary describes both her ongoing deep and mature spiritual realization, as well as the escalating persecution of Jews in Amsterdam, under German Nazi occupation. After being yelled at and threatened by a Gestapo agent, Etty wrote in her diary, I am not easily frightened, not because I am brave, but because I know that I am dealing with human beings, and that I must try as hard as I can to understand everything that anyone ever does. And that was the real import of this morning. Not that a disgruntled young Gestapo officer yelled at me, but that I felt no indignation, rather a real compassion, and would have liked to ask, did you have a very unhappy childhood? Has your girlfriend let you down? This theme of compassion, of love, of understanding, as a response to hatred, is a theme that runs throughout the course of Etty's diary, a love which she describes herself as childish, perhaps, but stubborn. She wrote, it has been forcibly brought to me here how every atom of hatred added to the world makes it an even more inhospitable place. But against every new outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness, drawing strength from within ourselves. We may suffer, but we must not succumb. I see no other solution I really see no other solution than to turn inward and to root out all of the ruddenness there. I no longer believe that we can change anything in the world until we have first changed ourselves. And it seems to me the only lesson to be learned from this war, that we must look into ourselves and nowhere else. Etty began to see herself as, quote, a small battlefield in which the problems or some of the problems of our time are being fought out. All one can hope to do is to keep oneself humbly available, to allow oneself to be a battlefield. I shall have to solve my own problems. I always get the feeling that when I solve them for myself, I shall have solved them for a thousand other women. And lastly, I do believe it is possible to create, even without writing a word or painting a picture, by simply molding one's inner life. That too is a deed. 
I'd like to give you a sense here of the tone of her diary, of her seeing a world surrounding her full of hatred and destruction, chaos, and her learning to carve out a space within herself to build compassion, understanding, love. It's, it's, it's a trite understatement to say that this is a tremendously inspiring work. And as I tell you her story, I'd like to read you some of the quotes from her diary. In June 1942, the Nazis started transporting Jews from Amsterdam to a Nazi concentration camp, Westerbork. And although her name did not appear on the deportation list, Etty, of her own volition, joined those leaving to the camp, volunteering to work in the camp's hospital. Equipped with a special permit from the Judenrat, from the Jewish Council, Etty was free to go back and forth from the camp to Amsterdam, during which she passed letters to and fro from the camp and to underground groups, and also smuggling medication back into the camp's very ill-equipped hospital. In Westerbrook, Etty had some very profound moments of spiritual enlightenment and awakening. Those two months behind barbed wire have been the two richest and most intense months of my life, in which my highest values were so deeply confirmed. In the midst of her extreme conditions, Etty developed a sense of awareness for the indestructible beauty in the world around her. She writes, The sky is full of birds. The purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women have sat down for a chat. The sun is shining on my face. And right before our eyes, mass murder. The whole thing is simply beyond comprehension. The misery here is quite terrible, Etty wrote to a friend. And yet, late at night, when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire. And then, time and again, it soars straight from my heart. I cannot help it. That's just the way it is. Like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent, and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Whenever I showed myself ready to bear it, Etty writes, from the depths of hell, the hard was directly transformed into the beautiful. Attentiveness, andacht in Dutch, is a word that appears frequently in her diary entries. Seeing an ordinary stone on the ground, Etty wrote, I should like to write a whole book about a pebble. I could live with nothing but a pebble for a long time and still feel that I was living in God's great world of nature. This capacity to give one's full attention and being to a simple, ordinary object which most of us just look past is the real mark of genius and what sets her apart as a visionary poet and author. And the capacity that she has to see beauty inside not just ordinary nature, but inside the horrific nature that she was surrounded by in a concentration camp is something quite outstanding. Etty refused to escape or to go into hiding, despite her friends in Amsterdam constantly imploring her to do so, once even trying to stage a kidnapping in order to save her from returning to the camps. Despite all this, Etty continued to return to the camp, even after getting ill and spending time in an Amsterdam hospital. She still found her way back to Westerbrook. And Etty was not naive. She knew exactly what she was returning to. But she felt an obligation 
to document the events in the camp around her as precisely as she could, demanding of herself to wield this slender fountain pen as if it were a hammer, and my words will have to be hammer strokes with which to beat out the story of our fate and of a piece of history as it is and never was before. And truly she does beat out a work of metal, taut and beautiful, frail and towering at the same time. On the 5th of July, 1943, Etty's permit of freedom of movement was revoked, and she became a camp internee, along with her father, mother, and one of her brothers. In those final days in the camp, as a prisoner, Etty addresses her God. From the folds of her diary, from the recesses of her being, she writes, Alas, there doesn't seem to be much you yourself can do about our circumstances, about our lives. Neither do I hold you responsible. You cannot help us. But we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. And elsewhere she writes, And if God does not help me go on, then I shall have to help God. The surface of the earth is gradually turning into one great prison camp, and soon there will be nobody left outside. I don't fool myself about the real state of affairs, and I've even dropped the pretense that I'm out to help others. I shall merely try to help God as best I can, and if I succeed in doing that, then I shall be of use to others as well. But I mustn't have heroic illusions about that either. Two months later, on the 7th of September, 1943, Etty, along with her parents and brother, were deported from Westerbork to Auschwitz. From the ghastly train car on the way to Auschwitz, Etty Hillesum threw a postcard out the window that was found later by a farmer and sent to its destination. In the end, the departure came without warning, she wrote. We left the camp singing. I'd like to read a final excerpt from her diary that her memory may live on with us. Etty, throughout her diary, writes really passionately about the role that prayer played in her life. She writes multiple times about a force greater than myself that drove me to my knees in worship, in silence, in a silence that slowly grew larger within me, and about the power and stillness that she would find inside her prayer and inside her silence. I draw prayer around me like a protective wall, withdrawing inside it as one might into a convent cell and then step out again, calmer and stronger and more collected again. I repose in myself, she wrote, and that part of myself, that deepest and richest part in which I repose, is what I call God. And finally, a prayer from the lips of Esther Basriva. You have made me so rich, O God. Please let me share your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, God. One great dialogue. At night, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, O God, tears of gratitude run down my face, and that is my prayer. May her memory be a blessing. You can check out here and here to learn more about Etty, and I will post a whole bunch of resources in the description. There's been a tremendous amount written on her, and if anyone's interested, I would highly recommend reading her diaries for yourself. Now, there are two other women who I wanted to mention 
who are quite similar in many ways to the story of Etty Hillisum, those being Simone Weil and Edith Stein. I'm not going to discuss them in this video for various reasons, but perhaps they will have a video of their own if you want to see that. I would also like to make another video, if the subject is interesting for the seekers out there, on women scholars of mysticism, people like the historian of Hermeticism and Renaissance mysticism, Dame Frances Yates, the scholar of Islamic mysticism, Anna Mary Schimmel, the great scholars of Christian mysticism, Evelyn Underhill, Margaret Smith, Grace Jansen, Janet Ruffing, Denise Carmody, and Sally King, and scholars of Jewish mysticism, Ada Rappaport-Alpert, Diana Lobel, Chaviva Pdaya, and Rachel Elio, just a few names amongst many of the great scholars of mysticism who I am big fans of and would love to discuss in a separate video. I'd like to conclude with some theoretical thoughts that are worthy of our consideration. These thoughts I found expressed very well by J.H. Chayes in the fourth chapter of his book, Between Worlds, Dibbuk's Exorcism and Early Modern Judaism. I am entirely indebted to him, and I'm probably actually just going to read whole cloth because he puts it very nicely. If you want to see it more in depth with all of his footnotes and references, please go check out his work, link in the description. Chayes writes that when we inspect the historiography of Jewish mysticism, we find not so much an overlooking of women's religiosity as a fundamental denial of its existence. Gershon Shalom, the modern founder of the field of Kabbalah studies, concludes the first chapter of his magisterial major trends in Jewish mysticism with the following remark. One final observation should be made on the general character of Kabbalism as distinct from other non-Jewish forms of mysticism. Both historically and metaphysically, it is a masculine doctrine made for men and by men. The long history of Jewish mysticism shows no trace of feminine influence. There have been no women Kabbalists. Rabia of early Islamic mysticism, Julian of Norwich, Therese of Avila, and other feminine representatives of Christian mysticism have no counterparts in the history of Kabbalism. The latter, therefore, lacks the element of feminine emotion which has played so large a part in the development of non-Jewish mysticism but it also remained comparatively free from the dangers entailed by the tendency towards hysterical extravagance which followed in the wake of this influence. Those are Gershon Shalom's slightly dated and cringy words at this point. It is impossible, however, to exaggerate the impact of such a definitive statement by Shalom, whose work effectively defined the parameters, methodology, and goals of the field for more than 50 years. Having defined Jewish mysticism as a entirely textual, ideational phenomena, being the philologist that he was trained as, Shalom could recognize only the primary producers and consumers of mystical texts and their ideas as Jewish mystics. And since women were not active producers or consumers of the textual tradition of Kabbalah, they could not be considered Kabbalists in the strict sense of the word. This, however, does not preclude the possibility that Jewish women had mystical experiences. It was not ideology here that impeded Shalom, so much as his philosophical doctrinal approach to the study of Jewish mysticism. So long as the mystical religiosity of men constitutes the standard of reference, women's mystical religiosity cannot be an object of research. It cannot be even said to exist. What needs to be done is to expand the very parameters 
of the definition of a Jewish mystic beyond the textual to include something other than the male who was involved in the textual study of Kabbalistic texts. And by expanding our understanding of what the mystic is and the possibilities of those experiences and what quantifies and qualifies one as a mystic, we will open the umbrella to many, many great individuals besides for just men throughout history. And not even to mention the great mystics of the other traditions throughout history, the great Christian mystics such as Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bingen, Therese of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Catherine of Genoa, Magri Kemp, and many others, the Islamic mystics Rabia and Aisha, Buddhist, Tao, Hindu, and Sikh great women mystics, and the more syncretic and esoteric mystics like Helena Blavatsky, Annie Besant, Mary Baker Eddy, Anne Lee, and Ellen G. White. There's really a lot more to talk about, about women and mysticism, many, many great women mystics of every tradition. If you liked this and want to see more of it, please give the video a thumbs up, a give it a share to a friend or two, or a repost on your Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, whatever. That is cool, and we appreciate that. Make sure to subscribe for more great content on history and philosophy of mysticism. And as always, keep seeking.